I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Hello and welcome to a special edition of Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. I am David Murphy of the Philadelphia Daily News. Soon to be joined by my colleague Bob Cooney, who is out in Las Vegas, Nevada, where he's been following the Sixers Summer League team. And up until the second half of Saturday night was all about Markel Fultz, uh, who has you know pretty much lived up to expectations. Um, you know he's he's been pretty much as advertised uh, through the summer league until right up until he sprained his ankle, of course. Um, and I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are well aware of the situation. Uh, we figured rather than waiting for our normal podcast recording day on Wednesday, that we would bring to you a special edition of not another Philly Sports Talk Show, so that so that we could go straight to our man on the scene, our men on the scene, um, and, and get an update on Markel Fultz. It sounds like the Sixers have dodged a bullet. Um, we're also going to talk a lot of Phillies, uh, in the second half of the show. I'll bring in Mike Sealski from his newly purchased and moved in home in upper Bucks County. Um, a lot of trade deadline talk about Tommy Joseph and Nick Williams and Aaron Nola. Um, so that'll, that'll occupy the last probably say 25 minutes of this podcast. If, if you're not a Sixers person, you can... Uh, feel free to flip right to the time code of about 26 minutes um, when the Phillies talk begins. We will not be offended, and frankly, uh, we don't care. First, though, let's uh, let's 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 get to Bob Cooney, um, who's out there living La Vida Loca in Las Vegas. Where are you staying at, Bob? I am staying at a Marriott right across the street from the convention center, about a half a mile from the Strip. Nice, quiet. Nice Italian restaurant uh, mm. right across the street from me, so it's my ideal place when I come to Las Vegas. I am not a strip guy. Now, are there are there table games in this in this uh, Italian restaurant? Nothing. That's amazing. Oh, in the, in the restaurant? No, nothing in the restaurant. Nothing in my hotel. It's it's. If you didn't know it was Las Vegas, you wouldn't you wouldn't. You, there's no hints of it being Las Vegas in either the uh, the restaurant or the hotel where I stay, which is just perfect. Well, I could use a little uh, like uh, gambling slash luck analogy when we kind of get into the Markel Fultz thing, but I'm not going to because I'm not that smooth. Uh, okay. But why don't we <laughs> why don't we just start by you telling Sixers fans why they should slowly back away from the edge of whatever uh, bridge or high ledge they're currently standing on with regards to Markel Fultz? Because keep in mind, we were told at one point. Uh, we've been told at multiple points over the last couple of years that in- injuries have been less <laughs> significant than less they turned out fear. to be. Yeah. So, t- so tell me why this time will be different. Well, uh, I will say this, and and you know maybe they'll prove the prove you know maybe they'll prove me wrong, but um, the fact that we saw him yesterday morning, the fact that um, you know just what ten hours after he got hurt. Uh, or more like 12 hours after he was hurt, we were standing on the floor and he was walking over to us without a limp, uh, only walking a little bit gingerly, uh, went on the court, grabbed the ball, was shooting, not jumping, but just standstill shooting, 
was in a great mood. Uh, you could tell the relief that he felt because he probably thought that he did something pretty bad to it. So, um, yes, it seems to be fine. A lateral uh, uh, sprain, which is something we've all had happen. Look, it, this just so happened, and I, I understand the, the Sixers fans being nervous, but this what happened is something that we've all seen and done a million times. I've broken two ankles by rolling them. I've rolled them numerous other times playing basketball. You've done it too, Murph. Everybody's done it. And it just turns out that last uh, Saturday night, uh, Martel Fultz did just that. And all it was is he has a sprained ankle. And that's the truth as we hear it now. I have no reason to believe differently. So there's no reason to, to, um, to get closer to the edge, back off, go back into your living room, sit down calmly and relax. Everything's okay. Just don't turn on the Phillies because you might, you might head right back up to that ledge. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, good point. Although you have a couple of days reprieve from that, so it's a good thing. Yeah, man, it's a, uh, it's it's a scary thing. I think I talked about this last year when Ben Simmons did his. Uh, I broke my my illustrious junior varsity career at Pocono Mountain High School ended with a uh, fractured fifth metatarsal. That, oh boy! Now, in fair, now, now, just to be clear, I did swat the crap out of the little kid who tried to go up on me at, before I landed. Well, on, before I landed I on heard, his foot, but <laughs> I, heard, I heard she wasn't that good, though. Nah. <laughs> I still remember the kid, Hassan. His name was Hassan. You'll never forget the kid oh. that uh, uh, ended your NBA career. You'll never forget the kid whose only shot you ever blocked. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. He just happened to be shorter than I was. My nickname was Smurfy in, in in high school because I did not grow until college. Um, but yeah. So so and then after that, I've obviously rolled my ankle a million times, and every time you roll it, you think you broke it. You know, like yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been and to like two emergency you know, rooms. And, brains are difficult. Like they'll linger, and they're sore. And, you know, you have to do all the proper things to, to make sure uh, everything gets gets better. But the, the good thing is recovery time is, is short, and it's not a break, and it's not something, you know, that, that has to reoccur. Right. It, it's fine. It's something, like I said, it's a normal injury. It happens. It's sports, and you move on. That's the thing. Is like you, and that's what Lloyd Pierce, I think, told you today in your in your column that you wrote here for Philly.com. But, um, yeah, it, it is sports, and – I mean, but the scary thing is, is like, you don't know until you see that x-ray whether it's broken or not, you know? And oh, yeah. And that for that, like, hour period or whatever it was while we were at the game, you know, so it happened right in front of me. Were you on and the baseline down, or the sideline? What's that? Were you on the baseline or the sideline? I was on the ba- I was on the baseline. So it happened, like, right in front of me. And he goes down and he grabs his ankle and I'm looking. And I thought, oh, no, you got to be kidding. And then you could see the pain really started hitting so immediately my vision goes to Brett Brown and Brian Colangelo who are sitting down the other end of the floor, over to Lloyd Pierce, all the other coaches, this, that, and the other. And basically, you know, everybody's did normal injury. Guy went down, you know, let the trainers take care of it, this, that, and the other. But you just had a feeling there were some lumps and some throats and some missed uh, heartbeats probably among all those guys. Well, there is definitely a missed heartbeat or, or a few um, from the center who I think sent out a tweet that just said, no, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. They were all sitting down at the baseline, but they all they all left like right before it happened because I texted one of the players, and, or he texted me, whichever it was, and like, you know, what happened? We just left. And I said, yeah, he went down, he grabbed his ankle. They're like, what do you think? What do you think? And I said, I, I don't know. You know, like I can't tell from here. I'm not a doctor. 
Um, so they were they were on pins and needles too. So you think do you think he will be ready to go by the start of camp? Oh God, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, barring <clears throat> anything else happening, this injury specifically is not. He should be back on the floor, you know, in a couple, a few weeks, whatever it is. Um, whenever the cutting and and uh, stop and go stuff doesn't doesn't hinder him anymore, yeah, he he should be back in no time. Like I said, it's this one appears to be just a normal sprint. Awesome, and but I'm sure that will not that that will not completely erase the doubt from our our poor scarred oh, fan base's mind. Uh, but let's talk about how how he looked in that in his brief um, in the brief time he did see the court. The, the one play that stuck out at me uh, was it was against the uh, Warriors the night he got hurt against the Warriors, correct? Yeah. Um, his change of speed is is something that's that's very very fun to watch. Um, he had a he had a little stretch there where he like it, it was it, it, there were a couple plays right before he missed a shot off the backboard and then uh, somebody came home and flushed it home. Uh, Bolden, yeah, Jonah Bolden, yeah, <laughs> who who has looked pretty good thus far, um, for whatever that's worth. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, what what have you seen out of him? I mean, what compared to what was advertised coming out of the draft? What what jumped out at you from a court level view? Yeah, you make a good point about the change of speed stuff, and that's 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 what Brett Brown loves in a in a guard, a guy who can go uh, slow to fast, fast to slow, uh, and keeping the defense off balance. He's he's herky jerky with the ball. You know, I, I saw it on film before they drafted him, and that scene in person, it's it jumps out even more. He he's he, he's kind of got his shoulders going and his and his legs. You just can't really read as a defender where he's going to go, but he's in control. He knows where he's going. I, I like how before he catches the ball, he knows where his first step's going to be, um, whether it's to the basket, whether it's a step back, uh, you, you know, a spin dribble. He, he, he He's just really versatile on offense. Um, his, his shot, I like it better when he shoots quickly, like when he catches and shoots. Like if the defender's coming at him, I like it better when he just catches and shoots and he's not thinking about it. Sometimes when, he, when he's wide open, there's a little bit of like, I don't want to say a hitch, but there's, a little something different when he kind of thinks about it. And it could lend to why he only shot like 60% from the foul line last year. Um, so, but, but all in all, just, just good things. You know what, Murph? He really passes the ball well uh, out in transition when he's on the move, which is going to be exactly what they're looking for with Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Barry Sharks. When those guys are on the floor with him, that's what they're going to be looking for him to do. He moves well without the ball uh, when he's still involved in the play. Uh, meaning, like, you know, he knows he's going to get it back, so it's a pass, and he cuts very well, which is going to happen an awful lot also. So, so far, from what I've seen, he seems to be like a, he'll be a real nice fit in with what they're going to surround him with uh, come the regular season. At the same time, I think that you, I think it's also pretty easy to see why the Celtics didn't have too, too much hesitation trading out of that top spot because, at least right now, like the thing that jumps out at me um, – from a room for improvement point of view is, is he just looks really live uh body wise compared to uh you know even some of his fellow draftees uh you know i mean like when when you look at the like really truly dominant transcendent number one picks they're all like physically physical freaks for their position do you know what i'm saying like right durant yeah. durant yeah. J- lebron james uh maybe not kyrie Irving, but, but even kyrie Irving's like very thick and solid and to go with his quickness whereas like there's still a lot of projection left, I feel like, for Fultz with regards to getting stronger, uh, where he'll be able to, you know, finish at the rim. Um, yeah. 
consistently. You know, what, he might he might not come out of this draft as the best player of the draft. I mean, that's that's not. But he he was considered probably the best talent. Mm-hmm. But he was also more importantly for the Sixers, he was the best fit. He right. really was. He was the best fit for what they were building and 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 what they saw putting around Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Uh, you know, it very well could be that Boston did a great thing in taking Jason Tatum, and maybe he fits perfectly with them, and he's looked really, really good in, in the games that I've seen him play live. Um, it, 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 but it, it could be that somebody else comes out. Dennis Smith Jr., who I saw yesterday with Dallas, he was jaw-dropping good. I mean, this guy, I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, my God, he's trying to act like Russell Westbrook, and, and he looks an awful lot like him, you know. Mm-hmm. But Saying all that, all those guys, as well as they may be, they just weren't, in the Sixers' eyes, the best fit for their team going forward. And that's why they, they made the move they made and, and they landed Martel Fultz. You can see why Brett Brown likes him, too, because he's got, like, honestly, he's got, like, a little Tony Parker in him. Um, like He's just, like, very smooth. Like, maybe, might, might never be the most, like I said, physically dominant player, but, like, if you were looking for a guy with Markel Fultz's skill set, I don't think there was a better one available than Markel Fultz himself. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you said, he, he just yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, he, he has more of a skill set than probably everybody else that, that was on the board. You know, the Sixers needed shooting. Well, Malik Monk was considered the best shooter. Markel Fultz was probably right there with him, you know, right behind him. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as ball handling goes, Fultz is there uh, as well as anyone. As far as scoring ability, he was probably the best guy. Um, you know, creativity, offensive versatility, all those things point to Martel Fultz, and, and that's exactly what the Sixers needed. So, you know, I, I really think the trade with Boston was a great one for both teams, and, and I think this draft pick, like I said, although he might not come out of this draft ultimately down the road as the best NBA player, I, I think it'll come out that he was probably the best fit for the Sixers. So, so if you were to take – it's funny. I, did you listen to Colangelo last night on uh... – he was interviewed on the broadcast. Uh, was, I didn't. You're probably on deadline, was, or yeah. it was after deadline. But um, he, it's he's uh, one of his quirks is like he he any chance he has to mention Jared Bayless, he does. <laughs> I think he really likes Jared Bayless because he he uh again he like went out of his way during a question about some of his guards to to throw Jared Bayless in there, and it just got me to thinking. Well, that it got me to thinking like, yeah. how do you think the minute distribution is going to break down between Bayless? Uh, Fultz and Reddick. Yeah, that'll be interesting because, you know, yeah, Bayless was his, you know, that was the guy he specifically picked last year. During, you know, it was this time last year that he signed him to specifically play in the backcourt with Ben Simmons and help Ben Simmons come along and be that combo guard. It just so happens that the number one pick in this year's draft is kind of exactly that and probably a more talented model of that. Mm-hmm. So I think Bayless serves as a good backup. Uh, because he can handle the ball, he can play off the ball. He's a good shoot. He's a good shooter, uh, spot up guy that, that that can make open shots. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting. I, I think you have to throw Reddick into the starting lineup simply because you want to spread the floor with Joel Embiid. And and if you don't have Reddick on the floor, you know Fultz is a rookie, and yes, he can shoot. Um, but but you don't want to put that pressure on a rookie to be that floor spreader. I think right off the bat. So. I think you throw Reddick in there with Simmons and Fultz in the starting lineup, and and I would go with the Covington because you need you need perimeter right. defense, and then of course Embiid, and then Bayless would probably be my first guard coming off the bench. Uh, 
whether it be Simmons, whether it be for Fultz, he could do both. He could do either or. Um, and, and, you know, you bring Sarich off the bench to have your majority minutes down low. Uh, so it, it, it's I, I think Jared Bayless is, is kind of that perfect example of how this team has grown as far as depth. You know, it's it's a guy that you can rely on to play a couple of positions. And, and they also have, you know, four or five guys that they can be really comfortable with bringing off the bench right now. So it sounds like, I mean, essentially Jared Bayless is going to be what he's been his entire career. I mean, this is, he's only started 82 games over, you know, right. 10 seasons or so. Uh, average, you know, he's averaged 20 minutes a game for his career. But, like, you forget that he shot, like, it's easy to forget that he shot 44% from downtown in, in you know, 15-16 before getting hurt last Exactly, year. exactly. And I had that conversation with him. It's funny you bring up these stats. Last summer I said to him, I said, you know, I was looking through your stats. The more three-pointers you shoot in a season, I, I believe his previous two seasons before signing with the Sixers were the only two where he shot like over 200, had over 200 attempts, were his best shooting percentage seasons. And if you look at it, the more he shoots from threes, the better he shoots percentage-wise throughout a year. He's like, wow, I never noticed that. And I said, yeah, so the more shots he gets, the better he is. And he has a chance to have some wide-open shooting downtown here with, with the inside uh, um, you know, ammunition that this team has. Yeah, case in point. So let's see, last year, or I'm sorry, 2015 and 16, he averaged a career-high 29 minutes and then averaged four-and-a-half three-point attempts per game, easily a career-high shot, as I said, 44%. And then, if you like you said, it's a good point as you go back through his – through his uh, kind of career roster here, really every season, the seasons where he attempted the most three-pointers, he shot the best. So in 2011, yeah. 2011 and 12, he attempted three and a half a game, and he shot 42% um, from downtown. And it kind of goes on, the, yeah. goes down there on a sliding scale. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, what, do you, what do you think is a reasonable ex- ex- expectation for this team? I mean, there's almost like two scenarios you always have to play out, you know, with Embiid, without Embiid. But let, let's just say Embiid – you know, let, let's say he gives you, you know, 25, 30 minutes a night um, for, you know, 65 games. What do you think? What do you think this team can do? I mean, it seems like they're yeah. if that happens, they could be a playoff team, it would seem. Be, I, I think, yeah, not only the improvement that they're going to have. Now, look, they're going to have their struggles, uh, which, you know, when you have guys that haven't played together, it takes a little while. When you when a bulk of those guys that haven't played together haven't even played in the NBA, it takes even longer. So, you know, Markel Fultz is going to hit hit like a two-week period where he shoots like seven for 50, you know, or, or he's going to be turning the ball over the, all the time. Ben Simmons is going to go through the same thing. He's going to wonder if his shot's ever going to fall. Like, like different things are going to happen uh, negatively, and they have to for this team to grow because they're so young. But if you look at the landscape of the, of the uh, Eastern Conference, you have so many teams that have just, like, gone down, plummeted. Atlanta got rid of every big name on their roster. Indiana's gone down. Um, I'm missing somebody. Oh, Chicago was another playoff team. All three of those teams last year were playoff teams. They're on their way down, and they're probably looking at rebuilds at this point in time. So so the Sixers now, that's three open spots. You're, you're wondering, like, because I think, I think uh, Cleveland, Boston, Milwaukee, and Washington – Four, and then there's another team that I'm Toronto. forgetting, but Toronto. Toronto, Toronto, yeah. So that's five. You got to figure there's going to be three spots open, and uh, and and with the rest of the Eastern Conference kind of just, you know, that the Sixers will be battling with with those three spots. Sure, if Embiid can play 65 games, and if, if Simmons can adapt and Colts can adapt, and they learn each other, 
you know, getting towards 500 isn't unrealistic. Uh, I know Brett Brown doesn't want to hear that right now, but that's just the reality of it right now. So now, now Amir Johnson's an interesting guy too. Uh, you mentioned Covington and Sarge. Where does Amir Johnson fit in? Uh, you know, in that in that three four conversation. Yeah, I wonder, Murph. You know, like I could see him. Excuse me. I could see Brett Brown maybe starting him. Like I could see, I could see him starting maybe at the four and saying, "No, let me get a defensive presence besides uh, beside Joel Embiid, so Joel doesn't get in early foul trouble or or uh, you know things like that." Or I could see him not getting many minutes at all. I could see him being like you know tenth man, eleventh man on on really a nine or ten man rotation where uh, he's just a locker room presence. I mean, it's his thirteenth year in the league. I talked to somebody up in Boston right after the trade. I talked to many people, but one of the people said to me, uh, his legs are just gone. That's just the way it is. His legs are gone. So um, I think it was more done as a locker room presence. When I first heard about it, I thought my immediate thought was Julio Okafor. They're bringing him in here to to light a fire under Julio Okafor's ass uh, to see what they can get out of him, if they can get anything out of him. Uh, Maybe that's the case. Um, but as far as helping them on the court, I think he's going to help them more other ways than on the court. So, all right. So, lastly, let's finish off on Julio Okafor because the one thing I noticed when we were over there, um, I don't know if you were there that day, but there, there was their first summer league open mini camp type day. Markel Fultz was speaking. Um, Julio Okafor, I didn't actually see him playing at all, but his body, he's finally, finally cut some of that baby fat that he's been carrying around the first couple of years. He, he looks like re- he looks really trim. Um, he looks terrific. He looks terrific. And and uh, Saturday afternoon, I was getting on a flight to come out here to Vegas, and uh, I look over, and there he is. We were on the same flight together, and and so I went over and talked to him, and I said, "Yeah, you, you look terrific." He says, "I feel great." He says, "I'm I, I feel awesome. I'm strong." And he does, Murph. You're right. He slimmed down tremendously, and he bulked up at the same time. Like he looks the strongest I've ever seen him. He's defined. Uh, he he's he's really tight. His face looks thin. He doesn't. And I talked to Brett Brown about it a little bit. I, I you know I said the same thing. I said John was on my flight. My God, he looks great. He says I'll tell you, he's as tight as he's ever been. And I I think they're really, you know, like you and I talked about before. If they can get that 15, 20 minutes of energy out of him and get him to buy into being that backup and get him into you know trying to play defense and surround him with the you know make him part of a, a nice second unit cast, which they're forming right now you know it could pay really good dividends for the team because the guy does have nba skill i mean is there any potential is there any is there any potential that that second unit kind of turns into a completely different team than that first unit and and kind of works through jaleel a little bit on the low block are they like are they still intent on trying to make him in, into that the open court type of player that that brett brown loves yeah uh, yeah, I don't think Brett Brown is ever going to have uh, a team that, that stops and looks for the, the low-post guy. I think he wants to go all the time. But if it's a case with the second unit where the going isn't good, like running and running isn't working for you, you're not getting back defensively or, or this and that, yeah, sure, he's going to have to revisit it. Does the second unit go to more of a slowdown? This would surprise me, but but does it have to be a type of thing where the second unit has to go to more of a slowdown game where – uh, it, it's better off not getting bit, bit, beat uh, back defensively because they're taking wild shots and, and they're not getting back. Is it better to slow it down and look to dump it to Okafor and have a quick half-court game as opposed and, – and, you know, the half-court game isn't going to just be a dump. It's pass and move, pass and move, pass and move. And that's what he wants. 
Maybe. Maybe that second unit slows down the fast break a little bit, but I don't. I, I can't see Brett Brown totally holding it back just for a guy like, like Jalil Okafor. I think he wants him to learn how to run with his team as opposed to everybody else learning how to slow down with Okafor. All right, so before we let you go, why don't you tell me what you're going to be looking at? Like, who are you going to be looking at now that Markel Fultz is out? Like, uh, a guy like Alex Prothrice, like he he had a couple spurts in the in the couple games that I watched. Um, who are, who are some yeah. of the guys who have a chance to maybe, you know, obviously TLC uh, is another guy who's got a chance to to show what he yeah, can. Yeah, yeah. TLC's been a little disappointing to me. Before he got hurt the other night, he's just been like kind of out of sync. I yeah, don't know what sloppy. it is. Maybe he's very been sloppy. playing lately. What's that? So he's been very sloppy. Like. Like turn, yeah, he turn has. Ball yeah, ball handling's bad. He's he's kind of a black hole offensively. Every time he gets the ball, it seems like it's going up. Um, I, I think he just has to bring it back a little bit. But um, but yeah, I, I'll tell you one guy to look at, and it, it's a local kid. Is Isaiah Miles, who uh, played at St. Joe's. He he's you know I was talking to some scouts uh, around the league about him. They all knew he was a shooter before, but there's just something to his game that that they really like. It's his his footwork is good. He's been hitting threes at a, at a pretty good rate here. Um, if he can keep that up, he might be able to, to hook on with somebody, but not, you know, not with the Sixers. Um, Larry Drew the second has played tough, but I, I think he he suffers that he's kind of the case where everybody knows what he is. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been with the Sixers before. He's bounced around the NBA a little bit, so people kind of know what he is. But but he's something that can that can you know he he has a skill that can help certain teams. He's quick. He's fast. Uh, he's aggressive. He likes to try to score. But yeah, Poitras is a guy that, that um, this is a shame. He's kind of out of position. He's a pick seven forward, but he's too, like too small to be, uh, he can't dribble well enough to be a three. He's too small to be a four. He can't handle the ball well enough to be a two. You know, if he can just like get the ball in his hands and shoot it or make a move and go, he's okay, but he's just not big enough to cover at the other end. So his size kind of hurts him. But you know, you never know. I mean, there, there's a few more games left, and some guys can open some minds, and, and uh, that's what they're here to do. When are you heading back east? I take a red eye on, uh, like, 1 a.m. Saturday morning, which gets me back to Philly about 9 a.m. No no pool parties or anything in between? You know what, Murph? This is sad, especially for a partier like you. But um, I have uh, I have seen – the Thomas and Mack Center and my hotel are the only two things I've seen since I for the two days I've been here in Las Vegas so far. So I'm hoping that changes today. I'm hoping today we get our work done nice and early, go see some basketball games. The Sixers have no practice, no games. And then maybe tonight go out and maybe watch a little uh, all-star baseball and uh, see what Las Vegas might have to offer. All right, man. Well, I can take a hint. I'll let you go. <laughs> That's not going to start for quite a while. It's only 9 and 8 in the morning out here. So. All right, Bobby. I appreciate it, man. All right, buddy. Be good, Mark. I'll talk to you. See ya. All right, now let's uh, bring in my partner in crime, who I have not seen a couple of weeks because I was on vacation. Mike, I miss you. Miss you too, Murph. Uh, Mike is currently occupying the lower left-hand corner of my computer screen here in our studio. Uh, I'm not used to seeing him without gel in his hair and that's kind of disconcerting (laughs) hairspray i don't use gel oh i'm sorry pardon me i thought you were more of a moose guy no 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 so once we dow sassoon bit the dust that was it for me so oh look at that cup 
He just took a swig of coffee, too. I'm fascinated by this. You also look like you're in a lunatic asylum because there's just white walls behind you everywhere. Yeah, well, I'm in my new office in my new house, which uh, we're still in the midst of uh, decorating and all that. So there's literally nothing on the walls in the office. Which go, to, is, literally, like, go to Ikea and buy, buy a picture or something. Like, my, my, my wife, I swear to God, is at Ikea right now. So we're on, we're on the case. Heck, go to Walmart and just like leave the sample picture in the frame. That would look even that would look even <laughs> better than what you've got going on. Right I don't want to distract you, Murph. You know, I, I want to keep the background as simple as possible so you, you know, don't go off on a tangent or something like that. Uh, yes, that I've been known to do that. Uh, <laughs> so what did I miss? I was out of town for a week. I just got done talking to Bob Cooney. Markel Fultz, you know all about his ankle. Have you been watching him play summer league at all? I have. What, I've been, what have uh, you thought? What have you thought? I, I've, I thought he's he's looked pretty good, all things considered. He's he's uh, wanting on defense, which I think everybody expected, um, but which I think uh, can be correctable if he's uh, if he wants to correct it. Um, but on offense, you know, when he has the ball in his hands, and even when he doesn't, he's been he's been fairly impressive. I really like the way he plays. I like the fact that uh, the the tempo of the game seems to uh, he, he seems to be able to control it. Uh, it seems to shift to whatever he wants it to be, regardless of what it was before he got the ball in his hands. He can speed it up. He can slow it down. Uh, you saw a little bit of that, actually, uh, before Summer League began. The Sixers, uh, in their last practice before Summer League started, opened up 10 minutes of a scrimmage uh, to a few media members who were there on a Saturday afternoon. And we got to see Fultz uh, in that setting. And you could see it even then, even in kind of the the ragged play of a scrimmage among a bunch of guys who, you know, 90% of whom weren't going to be in the NBA this year. Um, it was it was pell-mell. It was up and down. It was chaos, except when Fultz had the ball in his hands. Uh, and then the, the game kind of went on a yo-yo. And I saw, uh, you know, something similar to that in the, in the summer league games I've seen of him. Did you watch? You didn't happen to catch Brian Colangelo's interview last night on the broadcast, did you? I did not, no. Okay. Uh, then I will not ask you about anything that he said because you did not okay. listen to it. But I will ask you what you think a realistic expectation is for this Sixers team um, heading into the season. Because I've heard, I, I've, heard play, I've heard playoffs from a lot of people, and I don't think that's unreasonable, but I'm also not sure. I, I really don't. I haven't given this enough thought or study to, to really come in with a prediction yet, but I, I don't. I'm curious if you think that's a reasonable expectation or if you think that's more of a reasonable hope. I think it's a reasonable hope. I think uh, my expectation would be 40 to 45 wins. Um, well, that's a, playoff, I think that's, that's a playoff team. Yeah, that's probably a playoff team. Um, given given the state of the East, given who's on the rise and who is not, um, given that the Pacers, for instance, don't have Paul George anymore, um, given that Toronto uh, kind of stood pat, so to speak, uh, you know, given Boston got better by getting Gordon Hayward. Did they bring Pat Gillikin to stand Pat for them? <laughs> they did not. I didn't even think of that connection. That's a good point. Um, and given, you know, who the Sixers added, uh, their play last year when Embiid was healthy, uh, and, you know, the, the hope, I guess, I don't know that you can call it a presumption, but I think you can call it a hope that most of these guys, if not all of these guys, will uh, be healthy and play far more than, the 31 games that that Embiid played last season. So, you know, they went from from 10 wins to 28 last year with Embiid playing just 31 games, um, getting a full season out of Saric, 
you know, and and seeing that he has even more growing to do yet. Um, when you add a J.J. Redick, you add an Amir Johnson, uh, you know, you add Ben Simmons, you add Markel Fultz. And I'm not suggesting that Simmons and Fultz are going to come in and dominate. I just think they are. The likelihood is that they're more competent players than the ones they had on the roster last season, or at least some of them. Um, that I think they can be a 40 to 45 win team. What do you think? Uh, switching gears a little bit, catch me up on what the Phillies did heading into All Star break, and uh, what they're going. Wh- what you think a reasonable expectation is heading into the trade deadline? Um, do you think Tommy Joseph gets dealt? Uh, it was kind of an interesting. Matt Gelb had an interesting look at that. Pete McCannon had some interesting things things to say. Essentially saying, I mean, everyone seems to be in unanimity that Reese Hoskins and Tommy Joseph will never appear on the same baseball field at the same time. Uh, is there any way then Tommy Joseph does not get dealt? I would be surprised if he didn't. I, I, I'm not 100% sure of the wisdom of it yet. I haven't seen enough of Reese Hoskins to know that, okay, he's this surefire uh stud at first base and if Tommy Joseph you know hits 25 to 30 homers this season which he's on pace to do uh that you can exceed that by placing Reese Hoskins there now having said that obviously if you trade Joseph he's one of the few ascendant players you have um and so presumably you would get a decent return for him and maybe you can help yourself more you know all that calculus that you and I always talk about on the on the podcast about you know if you if you, you know, are you helping yourself more by dealing the guy with value, that sort of thing. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think that there is kind of this presumption now that Joseph is going to get dealt um, because everything that Matt Gelb and Matt Breen have been reporting and everything that uh, Pete McCannon and Matt Klintak have been saying suggests that they're ready to give Hoskins a shot at first base. And if they can move Joseph, they will. Um you know, again, I, I think this just comes down to the unknown of Reese Hoskins at the major league level. Um, I, I remember back in 2004, they tried in that spring training, they tried to they dabbled with turning Ryan Howard into a left fielder, um, <laughs> thinking that they might move him because you have Jim Tomey. Right. And it was not the experiment did not go well uh, for Ryan. Uh, he was never going to be an outfielder. And so he ended up having to wait until Tommy got hurt and then Howard took over and the rest is history. So um, I don't know that this situation is going to sort itself out in the way that that did. And I'm also not sure that you can afford to wait much longer on Reese Hoskins. I think you've got to decide whether he's your man or whether you're going to deal him. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, Tommy Joseph, it's been more than a season's worth of plate appearances for him now. Um over 100 his 162 game averages uh, 574 plate appearances and 31 home runs to go with a 796 OPS um, his OPS plus is he's about he's been about 10 percent above league average for his career now um, I mean he's getting to be what you see is what you get territory I think yeah I mean to hope that he, he might I mean his numbers are virtually identical uh, as the, as they were last year, uh, yeah. and that goes for the the meager walk rate as well. So I, I you know I think that's the one area yeah. he could improve. Um, he's only 25 years old. He he's had some of those concussion issues, uh, but yeah, it's interesting. Like it, it, it's almost counterintuitive to be talking about trading the one guy <laughs> who's in his mid 20s. I mean, besides Aaron Altier, who has actually kind of you know been a pleasant surprise for you at the plate, but you know first base is not a premium position. And 
I mean, there. Let's face it. There's Tommy Josephs everywhere in Major League Baseball. So I think the question is, are, are you going to get Matt Gelbson seemed a little tepid on the value that you could expect in return for him. Um, you know, what would you do? You, is he a sunk cost at this point, given Reese Hoskins, the, the need the need to get him up here? And are you are you pretty? Is he like Nerlens Noel, and you're just kind of looking for the best offer, or, or is there a very real threshold that must be met for you to trade him? From this is just for me. I, it seems to me from the outside looking in that the Phillies might be looking at him in the manner you just described as a sunk cost. Um, and we need to get Hoskins up here because Hoskins, we, we, we're going to take the chance Hoskins will be better. Um, I, I don't know about that. And, and um, you know, you're right. There are Tommy Josephs around Major League Baseball, but, you know, 31 home runs over 162 games is still nothing to sneeze at. And, you know, that's a big chance you're taking. I mean, that's the difference, you know, for all the Tommy Howard comparisons to this situation that's the difference is that you really the Phillies had no choice once Tommy got hurt that was it you got to play Howard and it turns out that he's better or more productive than Jim Tommy over 162 games at least at that time um you know you have to be really sure that Hoskins is going to be more productive than Joseph or you have to be sure of the return you're going to get in trading Joseph and you know, that would be my concern is, is, you know, the Phillies tend to do this. And I know this is a new regime. I know McPhail and Klintak are cleaning up the mess that had been left, you know, kind of at their feet by the previous regime. But the Phillies do tend to do this over time. They kind of hold on to this hope of uh, the next prospect coming up. I mean, Michael Franco was that guy at one point and J.P. Crawford has been that guy. And um, Dominic Brown, as you've pointed out, was that guy. So, I mean, I like what I've seen of Hoskins, the little bit I've seen of him. Um, but boy, I would, if I'm the Phillies, I have to look at this and say, I, I better get something of substance or what I regard as something of substance for Joseph before I move him. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm playing it too conservatively. Just, just if I forget to bring this guy up in a couple of minutes, remind me because I want to get your impressions on him because I have not seen Nick Williams take a major league at bat yet. But first I'm going to ask you about Michael Franco because he's kind of the inverse of Tommy Joseph right now where, yeah. it, you know, if you, if, if he had, if he, if he could muster what Tommy Joseph has mustered over the last year, you would be absolutely thrilled with third base moving forward. Um, I know Michael Franco over the last, let's see, over his last 26 games going back to mid June, he he's been a little more Joseph Josephian, Josephian, <laughs> Jofi- yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, I get it. Seven eighty four OPS and six home runs, uh, thirty eight over one hundred sixty two game pace. You know, like Pedro Feliz. That's you're hoping that that heading into the season, you're hoping that that was Michael Franco's floor. That he could be a guy at the very least to be your seven hole hitter, give you a good good glove and strong arm at third base. Um, maybe 20, 25 home runs and, you know, above average power, league average bat at, at the hot corner. Have you seen anything out of him to suggest that what we've seen over the last month might actually sustain itself? I mean, we, there's, there's been a lot of, a lot of scuttlebutt about Klintak perhaps shopping Franco. Um, the last I read was the price is expected to be very high if you know they're mm-hmm. not ju- they're not looking to cut bait at this point um is there is there any reason i should be more optimistic about michael franco than i was a month ago not from anything i have seen this is just me um i know what the numbers are um i mean these are not great numbers keep in mind they're just yeah, better they're, they're better than what he's been producing 
you know, I, I, when I watch him at the plate, I still see I see two things, um, and and they are they have not been corrected. And again, you know, people who are around the team more than I am, you know, insist and and swear, and I'm sure it's true that Franco is an incredibly hard worker. That he's he's dying inside over not reaching his potential or what's perceived perceived to be his potential, all that sort of stuff. Number one, um, his first movement at every pitch is to step in the bucket. Right. It's to it's to open up his hips, his his left hip, and, it, and the home runs that he's hitting. You know, most home runs are mistake pitches, but they are egregious mistake pitches in that they are middle in fastballs that he can get to even as he's opening up. If I were a major league pitcher, I don't know why I would I, I would. If I were a major league manager or pitching coach, I would remove any pitcher from a game who threw a fastball or slider on the inside part of the plate to Michael Franco. Because anything on the outside six inches of the plate, he cannot hit. Or if he does, he's going to roll it over to shortstop or pop it up or not hit it well. Um, and I don't see anything different in that. It's not like he's rocketing the ball to the right center field gap over the last three or four weeks. Um, number two, he's not the kind of hitter he doesn't shorten up at all with two strikes. And to me, he is not the kind of hitter who should ought to be swinging from his heels with two strikes. That was, it would be one thing if that were Ryan Howard in the, in the, you know, most obvious and greatest example, it would be one thing if that hitter were Barry Bonds who had such a profound sense of the strike zone and, and was going to hit, you know, hit the ball no matter where he threw it. Um, Franco, you know, doesn't change his approach, it seems to me, with two strikes. And, um, you know, the helmet is still twisting off. The All the flaws that you see that are obvious still seem to be there. And, you know, I kind of chuckled when you mentioned, like, Pedro Feliz as his floor. We've reached a point where Pedro Feliz seems like, you know, if he hits that as a ceiling somehow this season, that people would be happy with that. And that's not the player the Phillies thought they were getting. That's not the player that by all indications, Franco's talent suggests he ought to be. Um, I'm not encouraged. I really am not. Well, the one guy, one guy I know you're probably very encouraged by because you're a, you've been a big fan of his since at least last year's baseball preview in the Philadelphia Inquirer when you wrote about him, or maybe that was two years ago, uh, was Aaron Nola, who, yeah. who has been, um, I don't like to throw the word dominant around. I don't know that he has dominant stuff, but his numbers sure as heck have been dominant over his, you know, over over the last half of his season, um, in his last seven starts, he's averaging uh, right around seven innings a start, uh, two six one ERA. You know, throwing sixty six percent of his pitches for strikes, getting some. You know, he get getting a solid ground ball rate, solid swing and swing and miss rate. Uh, you know, the strikeouts are there. What have you seen out of him? It, he's got to be one of the more encouraging signs of the season so far. I think he is the the velocity, the velo as the kids call it oh, these yeah. days, um, seems to be substantially up. I mean, he's hitting 95 on his on the gun on his fastball, mm. which he was not doing when he broke into the major leagues, and and to have that happen after you know missing most of the second half last season with the elbow issue and then going on the DL this season. Um, you know, I, I don't know whether to look at this and say, okay, now that he's healthy and everything is fine, um, you know, he's he's becoming the pitcher or a new and improved version of Aaron Nola, um, or whether to look at this and say, boy, 
you know, once an elbow an issue, probably an elbow issue down the road. But he's looked terrific. The curveball looks looks sharp. Um, you know, he's moving the ball in and out. I've watched his last couple of starts. I'm going to have to not like him as much because he's hitting 95. Part of the reason I was so fond of him was that I liked the fact that he could he was averaging about 91, 92 in his fastball and still getting guys out. I like the novelty of that. And and now he's throwing 95 on the black. And so, um, you know, if you're the Phillies, you're encouraged. I, I just know that, um, like I said, my concern would be, you know, the elbow and, you know, is it just, uh, you know, a, a fuse that's going to, you know, cause the stick of dynamite to go off at some point. But as long as he's throwing the way he's throwing, the Phillies ought to be thrilled, I think. Yeah, and then another, and it sounds weird that the, I mean the team itself has been as putrid as ever, but um, you know there are some, there, there might be actually more bright spots than than down down spots. I mean, Adubel Herrera and obviously Mike Alfranco, you know, are disappointments as as things stand today. But when you combine that with Joseph and Altier, Nola, and then this guy Nick Pavetta, who has, you know, he might be starting to find a little something. Um, I'm not a huge fan of guys whose fastball has no movement on it, and I think yeah. that that's going to be a deal breaker for him uh, in this ballpark, at least. It, it, you know, it, he's a fly ball pitcher and an extreme fly ball pitcher, and when he gets hit, he gets hit hard. But he he has started to throw a slider and locate locate that slider or curve or whatever it is a little bit more. Uh, you know, pitch with a little more authority. He's over his last five starts. He's got he's got a sub four ERA. Um, you know, is there how much hope is there for for a guy like Pavetta? You know, maybe being you know turning into a number four starter for you in the future. I mean, I, same kind of thing. I noticed what you noticed that his fastball doesn't move a whole lot, but um, you know, he seems to have decent command of his other stuff. And I think what's interesting about a guy like Pavetta is it it harkens back in a way to something that we've talked about, and then I know I know you've written about, which is, you know, I, I understand the the. Um, the disappointment in what the Phillies have been this season. You know, we keep we keep using the same line. Like we knew they were going to be weren't going to be great. They were probably going to be bad, but we didn't think they'd be this bad. But you know, and everybody points to the Cubs and the Astros as the models for what the Phillies are trying to do. But what people do forget about the Cubs in particular is that you know they turned over so much of their roster in so short a period of time through you know trades through. Um, just kind of cycling through guys to find out who should stay and who should go that it, you know, in this process, this idea that because the Phillies are bad now, um, that they're therefore, uh, they're going to be bad in the future because the guys they have on the team now aren't any good, um, may end up being completely flawed because you have so many other guys who might yet come up now. They may not be any good either, but that's the hope is that, you know, a guy like a, a Reese Hoskins that and, you know, comes up and is an upgrade and that you're able by stockpiling all the pitchers that they did, all the young pitching, that you uncover a potential diamond in the rough, whether that's a guy like Nick Pavetta or, you know, they hope somebody else. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, you've written this and, and I think it's it's really right on, which is that people are going to just have to ride this out and be as patient as they possibly can, um, because that's just the nature of baseball. Um, you know, you still don't know what Jared Eikhoff might yet be. I mean, he threw those five shutout innings yesterday, uh, Sunday against the Padres, um, you know, and looked pretty good. 
Um, but his fastball was 90. His fastball times was 87. Um, you know, I looked at it and I kind of thought, wow, how are they not hitting him? Um, you know, it just, uh, you know, I think it's just going to ma- be a matter of like all of this kind of sorting itself out over time. And the Phillies are so, uh, th- they're not far into that process for everybody's complaints about how bad they've been for as long as they've been bad. They weren't rebuilding while they were bad. They just weren't. And the fact that they weren't, I think, has given some of the people who follow them like this false sense of like, oh, it'll their turnaround is just right around the corner because they've been bad for so long. Well, no, they can be bad and not taking any steps to be good in the future. And that's what they were doing for too long, I'd argue. Yeah, like I, I think it's I think some sometimes it's easy to miss the whole purpose of this current stage of, of where the Phillies are at. I mean, it's different from it's different from the Sixers in the sense that, like, the end game is not – it's not just a mere riding out to a top draft pick type thing. Like, this is about giving – you might as well give your opportunities to whoever has has the slightest flicker of potential uh, of being here in five years rather than, you know, a Michael Saunders or a, you know, right. how, you know Howie Kendrick. I look at you – mentioned, you mentioned the Astros, and, like, the guy that sticks out – jumps out at me is just, like, can't predict baseball type of thing is is a guy named jd martinez um and it's interesting because you mentioned the astros uh and uh, in his first let's see from 2011 to 2013 jd martinez like he played fairly regularly for the astros and Mm -hmm. like he he when he first came up he showed a little bit of power showed a little bit he he was kind of tommy josephish um you know his his first year in 2011 he had a 742 ops um in 226 plate appearances but then uh, over the next two years it just d- did not hit well at all 685 ops in 2012 650 in 2013 and houston just straight up cut him um right. dfa him and or, or dfa him and i think that the tigers then claimed him and as soon as he got to detroit he turned into one of the best hitters in the game and and yeah. this year he's he's like daniel murphying it where at 29 <laughs> years old, he, he's hitting 299 with a 381 uh, on base percentage, 610 slugging percentage, 991 OPS, 14 home runs. Um, and he's going to be a free agent this year. And frankly, he's a guy that the Phillies might want to think about uh, yeah. bringing in here. But I think the, like, the whole point, and this is for going on four years now that he's been a 900 plus OPS type player. Like, you just can't predict when, when, when or if. Uh, you can never like completely write somebody off and you can never completely write them in either. Um, I think right now the whole, the whole purpose of the Phillies process is to not give up on any potential JD Martinez is until, you know, you absolutely have to, do you know what I'm saying? Like, like, no, I, I can, and that's like the it. argument against Tommy, you know, that's the argument against giving up on Tommy Joseph. Right. Right. It's fu- It's funny. You mentioned that. Cause I read a long piece, um, by, I, I think a guy, you know, and a, a good friend of mine, Andy McCullough, who covers the Dodgers for the right. LA Times. And he wrote a, a very long piece about um, uh, Cody Bellinger, you know, who's just tearing the tearing it up for the Dodgers. And he had never been a home run hitter in, in any lower level of baseball um, until about a year or two ago. And Andy had this really cool nugget in the story where he mentioned, he just, it was kind of like a throwaway. Like all of a sudden Bellinger like changed the arc of his swing slightly. Mm-hmm. And he went from hitting like, five home runs every 400 plate appearances to this monster that he's become ever since, um, you know, to the point now where he's, you know, the 
you know, the youngest star really that the Dodgers have ever had. So you're right about that. I mean, you, you don't ever know when that click is going to happen. And, um, you know, to get back to a guy who you mentioned earlier, you wanted to discuss, like I've been, I've been fairly impressed so far with Nick Williams since he's been up here. I haven't seen, um, like the total disregard of the strike zone that I anticipated I was, I would see on a day-to-day basis given, uh, the numbers he was putting up in the minor leagues. Um, and that's always that, that thin line that you kind of walk with a prospect is, um, like you said, is it going to click? And if so, how dramatic will the change be? And, um, you know, like I said, I'm not saying Nick Williams is going to be a superstar or anything like that, but so far I've seen a kid who looks like there's promise there and it doesn't look like he's completely overmatched. You know, the home run he hit Sunday against the Padres was a low and away fastball that he stayed right on and, and drove, you know, out to the opposite field over the left field wall. It was a really nice swing. It suggested he can, he can drive the ball to all fields. Um, so we'll see. And, and maybe it clicks up here in a way that, um, that, you know, we click for J.D. Martinez once he got to Detroit. Yeah, and it's not, it's like, there's so many examples. And one guy who a scout, uh, you know, years back compared Michael Franco to was was uh, a guy like Edwin Encarnacion, who, um, you know, was always a solid hitter. Uh, never really had the struggles that Michael Franco had mm-hmm. ha- has had over this last calendar year. Um, but he was, he was a, uh, 29 years old before he turned into a superstar um right it was right around he he had a a very again tommy joseph type numbers through his 26 or 28 year old seasons and then all of a sudden he got to toronto and his third year in toronto something clicked and and from that point on he was an mvp type guy that was a similar trajectory to uh jose batista um yep and like yeah batista I, i actually wrote about this years ago when i was in new york like he changed um the timing mechanism in his swing. Like he, he went to that high leg kick that you, you would see a lot of blue, a couple of blue Jays hitters. I think Donaldson does it too. And that changed everything for him. Um, you know, you could see the production just spike immediately. Um, and the, the nature of the way he hit the baseball changed. Um, so yeah, I mean, you never know, you can't count on that. And I think that that's why, um, you know, you have to kind of hoard, all these prospects at every position as much as you possibly can when you're in a position like the Phillies are. Um, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. And that doesn't mean that, you know, getting back to the original topic you were mentioning, like that's, that's the hesitation I would have in giving up on a guy like a Tommy Joseph. It's just that he's been pretty good so far. There's not necessarily a guarantee that he's going to be that guy forever. Um, and if you trade him away and it clicks or he just has kind of a gradual improvement, um, and Reese Hoskins isn't, you know, the slugger that you hope he's going to be, um, you know, you're going to get second guess for the rest of your life. Well, what's up? What's up next on your agenda? Uh, I'm trying to think. I, uh, I listened to a late night conference call Saturday because this is what I do when I'm on, on my Saturday nights now nice. uh, with J.J. Redick and uh, Amir Johnson. So I'm going to try to crank out something J.J. Redick related, probably about uh, his time with the Clippers and why a team with that much talent um, couldn't get past the second round of the NBA Western Conference playoffs, um, kind of what went wrong there. He he gave an interesting answer about that. He basically said, I've been asking myself that question for the last three or four years, and um, I even don't want to – he's like, I don't even want to get into it, really. Um, it kind of hinted that 
the problem really wasn't about the fact that they had Chris Paul, J.J. Redick, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, um, that something was going on there that was a little bit intangible and and apart from just the, the sheer talent of the team. So well, that's I something mean, I kind of want to dig it, into. It also doesn't help when Blake Griffin gets hurt Yes. every year at the same yeah. time. Yeah, uh, or punches a buddy of his, his in the face and breaks his hand. Yeah, I mean, you never want to do that. Although I don't think my I don't think my face would break Blake Griffin's hand. I think his hand would break my yeah. face. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, but anyway, man, thanks for uh, thanks for checking in. We'll uh, all right. You got it. Thanks. We'll see each other Wednesday. Yeah. See ya. Oh yeah. Later. So that's it. Let's. Uh, you heard the man. We're gonna we're gonna be back here on Wednesday. Doing uh, something, talking about Philadelphia sports sprots as the 701 level calls them. Anyway, I'm Dave Murphy with the Philadelphia Daily News, and this has been your special edition of Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show.